Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm going to try to keep these intros a little bit more quick. Uh, nobody hears, needs to hear my long rambling, particularly because I'm recording a lot of these at the same time and uh, it turns out we're releasing them in a different order to which I'm doing the intros. So, you know, look. Anyway, this is all part of me not rambling, so just shut up and get to it. Uh, today's guest is an absolute comedy legend. He is celebrating 50 years of doing stand-up comedy. He is probably the first ever Australian stand-up comedian, and stand-up comedy would not exist in Australia without him and his great and wide influence. He is still performing to this very day. His name is Rod Quantock. He is a legend of Australian comedy. He is one of the greatest performers I've ever had the honor to witness. Um, It is an amazing honor in my life that I had this man who I have known as an entertainer since I knew there was such a thing as entertainers and that I have had the great pleasure of, you know, sharing conversations with and moments with not many, but some throughout my life. And he is a role model to me. He is exactly the sort of older statesman of comedy that I could only dream and imagine of being. Uh, He is a brilliant mind. He is a person who has so many intelligent and wonderful things to share with audiences still to this day, 50 years into his comedy career. He's doing uh, six shows uh, at the Melbourne Arts Centre during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, so hopefully this one will be out in time for you. Easter weekend, Easter Saturday is the first of his shows. Uh, I will have already started doing my shows by then. Uh, I started on Wednesday night. My official opening night is Friday night, Good Friday. So if you are hearing this uh, before Good Friday or on Good Friday and you're looking for something to do tonight, uh, Good Friday is traditionally not the easiest night to sell tickets at the Comedy Festival. Uh, People go away for the Easter weekend, etc. So they have things to do. Uh, If you are around and looking for something fun to do on Friday night, it's the official opening night of my show. So I'll have some press and stuff there. So Always a good night for there to be a big, uh, raucous, fun crowd. And to be honest, Good Friday, if it's not full of people, sometimes people feel weird that they're out on Good Friday. So come along, fill it up, be a big, noisy, wonderful crowd. That'd be all really awesome. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, today's podcast is definitely about uh, Rod Quantock. Uh, can we have a big thank you to Mike Hell, uh, my American producer who edits the episodes together. Uh, I have a very terrible for sound uh, place I'm recording at the moment, so uh, Michael ha- Mike Hell does, has to do a lot of mixing and make that all work. And uh, uh, young Mike, podcast Mike as we're calling him, uh, Mike who has come on as uh, the producer of this podcast who is booking guests for me and uh, helping me coordinate when I can uh, schedule those interviews uh, into my uh, overly packed at the moment schedule with all my commitments so uh this could not be happening without the two important michaels in my life uh mike hell in the u.s and uh young uh podcast mike so uh if you would like to support this podcast uh so the basically the way that it works at the moment is james fosdyke does some original art, art original james fosdyke does some original art i started that again like somehow i was going to edit this and make that all clean but i'm not going to uh, Mike Howard doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to edit my mistakes and my rambling. But anyway, uh, here's uh, uh, what happens. So every week, uh, hopefully, and uh, at the moment more than one a week, we're doing maybe two a week during the comedy festival and then we'll settle back hopefully in one per week. Uh, we are going to do this podcast, James Fosdyke, who does all the art for my shows and for my other podcasts. Uh, he did the backdrop uh, and poster design and if you come along and see my show you're about to see the wonderful backdrop that scenic studios have made of james's art um james does all that and uh 
the way that we pay him to do original art for each of these episodes is out of our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P, that's for all the podcasts that we do at TOFOP, our footy podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, uh, TOFOP and FOFOP, and of course, uh, this podcast that you're listening to today, Willosophy. So that's how you can support it. Um, the other thing is you can do is you can, uh, if you are still on Facebook, if you haven't quit Facebook, uh, we have a Facebook page. We'll try not to data mine you too much. And uh, Twitter, we have a Twitter handle. It's at Willosophy Pod. So that's the place you can find out about new episodes and stuff like that. Um, We're going to try to be a little bit more professional about the whole thing. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, it was a a great honor, a great pleasure. And please uh, go out and see Rod's show. I'm definitely going to go and see it myself during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And uh, if you are in Melbourne, go out and see as many shows as you can. It's the world's greatest comedy festival. And we talk about that a little bit on this podcast and... uh, it would not be the world's greatest comedy festival without the support of the world's greatest comedy audience. Uh, after that, of course, uh, I am going to Canberra, Perth, Sydney, and a bunch of other places, hopefully, as the tour goes on and on, and I announce more dates uh, later in the year, maybe some overseas stuff, and, well, look, we'll just see what happens. All right, enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, very excited to have today's guest here on the podcast. Uh, look, I won't get into why I'm excited before I ask him who he is because then that'll just give it away. It's no point to really do that. So I'm just going to say, hello, sir. Uh, who are you? I'm Rod Quantop. Do you need to know more? Uh, well, I mean, to pat out the podcast, we'll need <laughs> no, to know some probably more. probably need to know more. Uh, Rod Quantock's enough and I think for a lot of people listening to this podcast, I hope that Rod Quantock is enough. Um, uh, we'll get back to that. Uh, I'll ask you if you have a philosophy towards anything, and then we can just get all that out of the way, and we can just get on with the conversation. Do you have one? Um, do I have a philosophy? Um, no, actually, I don't think I do, to be perfect. You asked me, so I'll be honest, and I don't think I, I do. By the way, totally legitimate answer to the question. Good. Thank you very much. No, I think about it, well, I think everybody thinks about it a lot, and over the years I've thought about it a lot, but in the end, no. I think I just get angry at the stupidity of humanity, so whether that's a philosophy or not, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think an anger at the stupidity of humanity is something that has been through your work, but I imagine an anger at the stupidity of humanity might be something that sometimes feels exhausting or hard to maintain (laughs) it is well the the flip side is is that i really like people it's humanity i really can't stand so um i despair at our genius and our stupidity and i've at different times i can actually step right back from it and as if i'm looking at it from a completely different dimension but there are times when Oh, yeah, yeah, I find it very hard to get up on stage some nights and follow through with my promise of making people laugh. How do you, uh, when you are talking about something that, like, genuinely makes you angry, like, yes. not, not I'm going to be angry at this for the sake of, you know, comedic frustration, but I am genuinely angry about this. This is something about my country or my world that I find 
devastating or disappointing or you know anger making uh that transition from it being that in your heart and in your head to that it being a piece of entertainment for people what's that process like um look uh, if it's politics it's reasonably easy um I, i have no interest in politics anymore so i don't follow the news or read the newspapers but i found um, and you can see it clearly now, the way the world's lurching to the right, that you've got, well, everybody says Donald Trump, but he, there's a parade of fools and ignoramuses in charge of the biggest country in the world at the moment. And it's not hard to find humour in that, that, that writes itself. But my interests are around um, the future. So they're around climate change and the limits to growth. And it took me two years to work out how to do a show about that. It was really a battle, and part of it's because there's science involved in it, um, but there's also this extraordinary, oh, it's going to be cheery, isn't it, existential dread that accompanies that um, uh, line of thinking. And to turn it into humour was, yeah, I found it really the hardest thing I've ever had to do in terms of comedy. Well, I mean, firstly, I think the reason that people have downloaded this podcast is for at least a tiny little bit of existential dread. Oh, so okay. don't feel bad that you're providing well, I got that for buckets. the audience. I've got buckets. Well, yeah. I think this is good news. It never yeah. rains, but it pours, right? Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, how, let's start with a really simple premise and work back from there. How, how do you feel when you look at the future? How do you feel we are now positioned and what our future looks like? Um, well, we're fucked, basically. And then, um, look, I can't pretend. I, I'm just wrapping up a 12-month research project at Melbourne University looking at how to find a different way of communicating climate change. So every day is 20 or 30 Google alerts around bushfires, floods, wildfires, pandemics, all sorts of things, melting ice caps. And, um, look, some people are saying 10 years, some people are saying 20 not many people are saying 30 it's really very very close and we're going to lose the great barrier reef whether we stop the adani mine or not so those things have you been to the reef i've never been i so right i watched david attenborough uh did a special about the great barrier reef and uh i have told this story on the podcast before but Mm. i'll tell it again because i haven't told you this story before thanks it was the ABC were replaying it around the sort of Christmassy holidays. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something that they decided to roll out. And I had a group of people at my house. We'd been having a, a barbecue in the backyard. And it's that time of the evening where there's still some people around and conversations have split off into, you know, pairs or groupings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was at the point where I was like, you know what, I'm, I feel like I want to go inside and, you know, see what's on TV. Mm-hmm. And so I found... I, I, t- I tuned in and they, I love David Attenborough and all his stuff and I hadn't seen this one he's done about the reef. And an hour later, what I noticed was that the party had continued around me, but in the hour that they had just gone on with their normal lives, my entire like world had been shattered in front of mm-hmm. me because not only had I in the first half of it been introduced to wonders of the barrier reef that I did not know even existed because the first part of that you know, documentary that he makes is about the great wonders and breadth and depths and, you know, ecosystem underneath our oceans that we don't mm. even realise that are there that is just off the coast of Australia and is more fascinating than any James Cameron film about a fictional, mm. you know, sort yes, of yeah. planet full of blue people. Yep. And it yep. exists 
uh, off the coast of my country and I haven't seen it. So this is my first revelation. My second one is that uh, Sir David Attenborough is 90 years old and he's down in this you know, uh, contraption filming something deeper in the ocean than anyone has ever gone in their life. And I'm like, look at this man. This man who's still at this age in his life, you know, feels that this is an important story to tell and is giving me this great gift of me seeing it. And then in a horrible twist at the end, oh, essentially the last five minutes is <laughs> yeah. him telling you, by the way, this is all doomed. Mm. And I'm so he has a line in it that he goes, and he's almost brought to tears. Because he, he talks about if we care so little about the place that has given us life, then, you know, essentially, how do we go forward from mm. here? And, you know, everyone else has gone on with the party. And <laughs> yeah, I'm now sitting, sitting sobbing a of in a chair yeah. in, the, in the living room. Oh, I, but, did, I, I got very tearful about the reef. I did go oh, 20, 20 plus years ago, just on one of those, you know, $120 day cruises. But it, it is just extraordinary. And um, but I've seen it in its devastation as well. But I've never seen anything so beautiful. And because you're weightless, you, it, it's the most extraordinary feeling to have an eight-foot groper swim past you with no malice aforethought at all, and at the same time these tiny little darts of light flashing in and out of the coral. It's wonderful. And um, as David Attenborough said, we pissed it all up against the wall. And I find that. Um, yeah, I just I have a great admiration for the human spirit. I've, I've spent a lot of time um, reading about scientists and mathematicians, and I have a great admiration for our intellect. And um, yeah, the best of us has been overwhelmed by the worst of us, and that's a yeah, that's a civilization-ending tragedy, really. So I I have my gloomy moments. And there was a time when I fought really hard to change it, um, but I can't. People won't talk to me about it, so I just stopped talking about it. I've tried, you know, I go on ABC Radio and say climate change, and all of a sudden it's tell us about your bus trips, um, and we never get very far at all. So um, I still keep doing it, and um, I won't stop doing it, but I don't think there's. I don't have a happy ending for anybody. And, and I also think, and this should be something you keep in your mind, as civilization collapses, one of the least needed skills is the skill of a comedian. All right? So just on the menu, we'll be close to the top. I mean, sure, like when we start eating people, we're close yes. to the top. Yes. But I think that there's a sweet period in between where... When all hope is lost, the only hope we have is to make fun of things until we get to the eating stage. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm, well, that, uh, look, you asked me, uh, as you said, you asked everybody about their philosophy. That's what I'm struggling with at the moment. I'm trying to find a way of coping with all that um, in a way that's got meaning. And that's really hard because unless you were living in a village knowing that Genghis Khan was over the hill and you've got 10 minutes to live, you don't really understand um, that position you're in. And it's very hard to get a philosophy in 10 minutes, but I've got a decade or two to work out my philosophy. Uh, it's interesting to me what you say. I, uh, do you know who Ray Kurzweil is? Uh, no. He's a futurist. Oh, okay. Essentially, yes. he had one of those weirdly titled... 
you know, Google jobs they give, yep. you, know, it, you know. So he was the first person who posited, I believe, or at least the more famous person who posited the idea of the singularity when sort of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, machines and humans, you know, be, become one, yep. you know, or, you know. Uh, he said that one of the trickiest things about that, the thing that will keep us in front of the machines is humour, that mm-hmm. one of the hardest things for a machine to replicate is so look, we might not we might not survive the sort of you know apocalyptic climate thing, but mm. we're going to be okay against the killer robots as well. I so. think yeah, if we could make a robot laugh, <laughs> we could make anybody laugh. Now, humour is really interesting because I I have a, a Italian brother-in-law whose English is very very good, but when he first started coming to Australia about twenty five years ago, it wasn't good enough to understand humour, and twenty five years later it is. So you can sit with him and you can watch English comedy, American comedy, and he gets it all. But it was such a cultural language barrier for him. And robots, I don't know. If they start laughing, little screws are going to pop out everywhere and it's going to be very noisy. I'd like to try it. Uh, So if uh, things are as bad as you and... uh whole bunch of very intelligent people who study these things suggest that they are uh i think that perhaps part of the the problem is this you know the boiling frog you know mm. we were we happen to be talking about this boiling frog thing today which is actually it, it turns out not scientifically no, true no. but but we all Poor know frogs, so many have died right trying to replicate that <laughs> But the idea being that a, a frog will jump out of boiling water, but if you heat it up gradually, you can boil them. Yes. Turns out it's actually not true. But mm. for the sake of what we're talking about, maybe not the worst analogy, because if it were a big, catastrophic, you know, Genghis Khan in the next village type event, then maybe we would oh, be rallying we'd be up things. and away like a shot, yeah. No, it is a, it's this incremental thing, but it's also... The amount of money that's been spent uh, by the children of the tobacco lobby to convince people that it's either not settled science or there is no debate or if there is a debate, then equal time's required. And I remember doing a thing for Robin Williams. I rang him I said, look, I'd like to do a piece about climate change. So we recorded it and I think it was about three and a half minutes long. Anyway, he said, my producers insisted that we get a balancing uh, opinion to your opinion. So they got... um, um, Patrick Cook and I hadn't quite realised how right wing Patrick Cook was anyway and somehow I can't remember the details but um, uh, one of the essential ideas in his book was that people who insisted on doing something about climate change were not very different from the Nazis loading the Jews onto the cattle truck now I didn't quite understand how that all fitted in but he got four and a half minutes to my three and a half minutes and talked twaddle and when that's being demanded by the media, what does the, what does the public make of it? The public, and you see it now with all this data mining, the public only read what they want to read. And it's so easy now to completely pinpoint an individual in the world and give them what they want to read. So if they want to read that um, vaccination is um, uh, the first step to autism, there's no end of that, and you, but you can't get the vaccination isn't the cause of aut- autism into the message for them. So it's really, it's hellish. And see, in America now, they've had the worst bushfires in their history in the middle of winter. In the middle of the US, uh, it's in the worst drought they've had for a very long time. And on the East Coast, they're 10 foot under snow. And they're beginning to understand, particularly people in Florida, 
are now talking about um, boating for the environment. So it is a, it's the frog in the boiling water slowly. You know, if you have three hurricanes in 10 years and you lose everything every time, sooner or later you, you join the dots. Uh, it's interesting. My dad's a dairy farmer. Yes, been, I know. Has been all his life. Yes. And, uh, you know, he thinks the science is settled yep. because he has been a dairy farmer for 60 years and he's seen things change. Yes, and when you right. work yeah. with the elements, you are very aware of, you know, what the elements were like two years ago, five years ago, yep. 10 years yep. ago, and you know which things are cyclical and you know which things mean that things are actually changing. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to quickly talk about the idea of this uh, false balance. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the major criticisms uh, that I get about this podcast is that I only invite like-minded people on. Well, why would you want other than like-minded people in your own home? Well, I mean, you're doing the right thing. Firstly, that. But secondly, I do believe that part of the reason that we've got to where we are on these things is that we think that balance means when you get somebody on to talk about climate change, then you should get somebody on to talk about how climate change isn't real. Mm. When the statistics on the evidence behind that are, you know, high 90s for people, you know, experts yeah, who believe it's yeah. real versus the other. That should be the equivalence. You should, if you're going to have an equivalent, you can get... He, Patrick Cook should get 3% of the you know, that's time right. that exactly you've got, right. right? Yeah. But secondly... I think that what we miss out on, on that, on these you know, faux debate television shows that never solve anything because you have two people who will never agree yelling at mm. each other for an hour, is that I like the days when, well, maybe I'm remembering things that were never true, but where a debate <laughs> yeah. that was balanced would be, we both agree that climate change is a thing. Mm. Now, here's the debate. I believe it's because of this, this, and this, and this is how we fix it. And you're like, well, actually, I think it's a little bit more because of this and this, and this is how we fix it. Yep. And that's the debate. And that's what I think this podcast is about. Yes, the people I get in this door are like-minded to a certain degree. But if you start to unpick their lives, you will find that they agree and disagree on a whole bunch of things. Yeah. And I yep. hope that those things are interesting because they come from... You know, I like the idea of, I, I miss that time where perhaps, you know, both parties would say, when, when it comes to refugees, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah, refugee policy is a really complicated thing. There are a huge percentage of the Australian population who believe this, this and this. Uh, we both want to come up with the best solution for it, you know, in all these things. And, you know, we think this way, we think this way. Mm. It doesn't feel like we have that anymore. No, well, we don't. And it, it's quite deliberate. I mean... Uh um, I do a bit in the show about Rupert Murdoch because I find him the most reprehensible creature. Um, but okay, his news... we are, I'd say we're, we're like-minded. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so his newspapers, uh, the headlines in his newspapers, um, because there's an election coming up in Victoria, there's been a steady run of um, uh, crime stories about youth violence yeah. and so on. And on media... African games. Yes, that's right. And on media watch the other night, I saw, uh, I think, the Courier Mail had a headline, Six Africans Beat Up My Son. Well, that was the father who had no information about what happened. It was one African and two Caucasians who beat him up. But the headline was the father's opinion. And that's deliberate. So instead of people fighting the banks and the mining companies and the people who deforest our suburbs and destroy our water and eat up our agricultural land, we fight one another. We hate one another. We're frightened of one another. And, um, and that works divide and rule and it's what you see in america 
It's unbelievable that people who've lost their jobs because of neoliberal economics and the free market and deregulation of everything would vote for the class of people that are oppressing them. It's they're, really wacky. They're very good at doing that, though. Yes. I've, I've said before on this podcast, and uh, look, you know, some people have accused me of, you know, hyperbole, but I think that Rupert Murdoch is probably the number one most responsible for the state of the world that we're in now because the way that he led the media in the UK in America and here we wouldn't have Trump we wouldn't have the rise of the alt-right even though he wasn't directly responsible for this version of it Mm. he laid the foundations and the gardens for where this has gone and yeah. And people sometimes think I'm overstating that, but I'm not sure. No, that no, I am. no. It's uh, look. I just remember the invasion of Iraq, and that was entirely Murdoch. Um, I re- remember there's a cover of the Herald Sun that had three huge Abrahams tanks roaring across a desert um, uh, landscape with a big headline: "Aussies at war." Now we actually didn't have any tanks in the Middle East. We bought some tanks from the Americans that won't fit on any of the boats that we have. Right. So we can't take them to the Middle East even if we wanted to. So here's this picture of Australians at war, and it was obviously Pakapanyal if it was anywhere, and we're invading ourselves. And it, it's not called out. And you, you can see on Q&A the amount of time it takes to fact-check something, um, but the fact in somebody's head already and, and changing, it's really difficult. So I, I find his use of the media... Um, I, I find it extraordinarily de- depressing. I just, you know, you, you don't get elected in England, the US or Australia, unless Murdoch wants you to be elected. And it's really as simple as that. And his mates and his networks are the bankers and the merchant bankers and the miners and all these people. Everybody's up his ass, and it's getting very crowded. And now you, I'm interested in what your perspective is about how then you... Uh, engage with that media. So I'm a person who lives a little bit more in the, you know, broadly commercial world. Yes. And so for me, you know, Melbourne Comedy Festival's on. I want to, like, you know, tell a whole bunch of people my show's on and sell Mm. a whole bunch of tickets to my show and all these sort of things. The Herald Sun is the major sponsor of the festival and, you know, if I want to get the word out there to people, then I'm going to have to go and do something as part of that. Mm. And it's one of those... I don't know, is it a compromise of your integrity to do that? What has been your attitude to those sort of things? I'm um, interested. Well, the, the Herald Sun doesn't uh, ring me, but so I don't have to battle with that compromise. But uh, the few, particularly like 10, 20 years ago, I, uh, I had a very high profile, particularly for my activism. And when I spoke, did interviews with journalists from The Age, oh, we hate Andrew Bolt. Oh, he's really horrible. I don't like working for this newspaper at all. But it's a job, you know, and that's the problem that we're also embedded in a system that it's very hard to see another way of uh, of doing things. So, uh, look, if the if the age, uh, sorry, if the Herald Sun rang me and said we'd like to do a feature story about your show, I'd do it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because um, the because you hope that somebody who reads that is interested enough in you and then comes and sees the show. And then gets maybe... That's how I justify it, Will. Yeah, yes, well, I guess absolutely. that's how I justify yeah, it too, right? right. No, I'll probably say more about yeah, me than I am. Yeah. You. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. But uh, look, I'm... Uh, uh, um, uh, this is 50 years for me this year since I started doing it. And so I, my most of my career has been in the newspaper 
get a review in a newspaper sort of world and that's changing so much now and um so you've got to be you've got to exist in another dimension of the internet to really uh, make the most of the uh, advertising chances you've got and that's where i struggle a bit so so it's interesting to have you here with the 50 years because for me, that is, I mean, I remember when I first, I mean, I remember having seen you on television when I was a kid, you know, mm. I'd, we, you know uh, I'm 44 years old, you've been doing it for 50 years, yeah. you know, <laughs> okay. so um, that's normally the conversation I'm having with young people with groovy yeah. haircuts yeah. and comedy clubs now, Rod, by mm. the way, <laughs> like, oh, I grew up watching The Glass House, I'm yeah. like, surely that was only three years ago, <laughs> but um, it is a very long time and comedy is a very different thing now to what it was 50 years ago when you started doing it in fact i was talking to dave hughes on that couch just uh, this morning when mm-hmm. we we're recording this and uh we were talking about the idea that both of us have done sort of 20 plus festivals in a row you know now mm-hmm. and um how different comedy is from when we started doing yep. it i remember the first thing that i ever had in a newspaper was a picture alongside you I remember 20 years ago I can, we I know we did we a little photo and, shoot together. Yep. I remember where we sat and yeah. Yeah. How we chatted, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was probably at that stage the most exciting and interesting thing that had ever happened to me that mm. photo shoot that day. It was to me I was sitting alongside somebody that I had grown up watching and being entertained by and in my mind was a comedian in the way that I wanted to be a comedian, which was I hadn't fallen in love with television stars mm. or the idea of being a movie star. I had loved this idea of, you know, this anarchic sort of you can say anything, you can do anything, you can create a comedic moment out of, you know, everything yeah. from the yeah. bus to the television studio to a live performance. Mm. And so for me, that was such a wonderful moment. Well, like I it remember really it very well because, and I'll use this term in its um, kindest way, um, uh, I remember you being extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, precocious in the sense that you, you'd hit the ground running as a comic. And that, that's one of the things I've noticed now that I think um, increasingly comedians are spending a lot of time watching other comedians and whether they um, draw influences from that or not. But what they do, they've got the skills... Uh, when they first walk on stage they're much more advanced in what they do but also i think they learn to think as comedians it's a hard thing to explain but um i just see so many really good comedians around the, the little bars and so on in melbourne um there's not room for them uh, to really make great careers out of what they do but they're smart and they're intelligent and they're analytical and they value the opportunity getting up in front of people gives them i mean one of the great things about our job is we get to say what we want to say to an awful lot of strangers and there are times um, <laughs> there actually are times when i'm on stage and i think i'm just going to unload all this bile on these people and i'll go away happy and my tendency now is to make sure people aren't smiling when they leave um, <laughs> um but yes, it's a great privilege, and I, you know, as I say, I remember you. And I, what I took away from that interview was just how um, bright and smart you were, 
and that's that's the abiding impression. I'm, it's not me to sit here and now interview you and praise you, but it was a really um, it was a very telling moment. I, I did done a lot of interviews with other comedians, but that one really stood out. So I'm glad you've done as well as you had because I put a couple of dollars on you back then. <laughs> <laughs> I um, it was a different time though. I will say that yes. I, I I do feel very grateful to. I feel like I got the best of the timing. You know, yeah, sometimes yeah. there's a Malcolm Gladwell book, you know, called Outliers, which, you know, talks about the theory that sometimes it's about, you know, Bill Gates having the 10,000 hours of experience at the exact same time as computers became a thing yeah, that people yeah. were really interested in. And certainly so much hard work had been done to build, you know, a comedy industry and community. Oh, yeah, no, but I, it was starting, yeah. it was at the point where... See, now, as you said, I've done a couple of small rooms the last couple of nights and probably 10 or 12 of the people who are on each of those lineups, you just think, they're all great. Mm. You could give any of these people something bigger and better to do and they would all do a fantastic job yeah, of it. Yeah. I don't think back back then it was still a little running away to join the circus. Uh, yes, it was. And uh, look, when I began, it was just purely by accident. I just got involved at university and from the first moment I walked on the stage, I thought, well, I should live here. Um, and so I just made every effort I could to find stage time. But there were no venues uh, to talk of. Uh, you, had, you had to be Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and rent your own space. But that's what we did as a group. Right. Um, and then one day somebody told me I was a stand-up comedian. I thought I was just a guy who stood up and talked, but I was a stand-up comedian. So I, I got some you know, credibility out of having a proper name for what I did. But it was, um, they were really exciting times, but I realised that uh, what you said is our timing was probably out by about five or ten years. By the time uh, it had blossomed into the world of television it is now I I don't know whether I was too old or too tired I don't know what it was but uh, you know I just didn't uh, I just couldn't grab onto that and and follow that through which doesn't particularly worry me but um, it wasn't a really adventurous time and nobody knew where it was going to go and you couldn't stand, you know couldn't stand back then and think well there's going to be 600 shows in the comedy festival in 2018 um, I was on the board, the first board of the festival, and I think there were less than 20 shows in the first festival. Um, and, and, you know, that was all the comedians in Melbourne at the time. And now you really do have to have 600 shows to, to give them all an opportunity. And I, I look, I, I love the atmosphere it creates, particularly around the town hall and the, the inner city. I, just, I think it's a wonderful time of the year. It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, could you have ever imagined that the entire city, essentially, the heart of the city, mm. for one month becomes about comedy? No, I, about no, laughter. it wasn't. I mean, I think John Pinder did. Um, sadly, John died a couple of years ago, but John Pinder started it. Um, and he'd, he'd had experiences at festivals in Europe. Um, he'd been to Edinburgh before anybody else had been to Edinburgh. So I think his vision was for something big. Um, I'd never seen a festival. I had no idea. I just thought you go in it and you have fun and see what happens. But um, no, he was very, he had a lot of foresight. And I think John Kane, who was Premier at the time, also 
had that similar foresight. He was the one that, in front of um, the Baying Herald Sun, boldly said, I'm going to give $350,000 to comedians. That's a hard sell back in those days. That was a lot of money, and he did it. And uh, that's where it started. And Melbourne should have always been the centre of comedy. It has always been the centre of comedy. It's not to disparage any other city, but there's something about Melbourne that makes it the comedy capital. Oh. It's partly geography and it's partly our society and lifestyle. And it's also, I think, in main part because we weren't founded by criminals. Uh, it's an interesting thing, all the elements that go into mm. making it something. And, you know, it's never going to be one thing that makes it, you know, what it is. But I believe it is the greatest comedy festival in the world. There are bigger and more renowned, not much bigger and more mm. renowned. You know, people talk about the Montreal Just for Last Festival, but that's more like a a, uh, you know, a comedy convention, yep. you know, for US agents more than mm -hmm. it is a festival for artists and performers. Um, and then you have uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, mm. which obviously is the world's biggest fringe festival, but it's not a comedy festival. No. It's a fringe arts festival that has an element of which is comedy. Mm. Melbourne, for me, is, you know, it's a comedy festival yep. that is, you know, you have all these independent artists, regardless of whether they're in a 10-seat room, you know, playing to friends and family every mm. night through to, you know, the top end now, which are local talent who are selling you know, 1,000-plus seat theatres per night, yes, let alone, yeah. you know, over a run. Mm. But they're all doing the same job. Yep. They're all going away over the year and going, what is it that I want to talk to people about for an hour? Mm. And here it is, and I'm going to hang up my shingle, and we're all going to do it together. Yep. We're not going to... It's not a... I mean, there's an element of com competition to it, but uh, we think that the whole adds more than it subtracts. Well, yeah, no, I, uh, that's the thing I remember from the first festival. There was a... Um, camaraderie in that first festival which was quite remarkable and that hasn't gone away no no which I is think, amazing yeah. in a way isn't it well because i think other comedians understand that it's hard um, whether you're at the top or the bottom it's still hard and um over 50 years um i've had times when i really wondered whether i could ever do another show where what am i going to talk about where it's going to come from um and those I enjoy that, in a perverse way, I enjoy that because it, that's the thing that pushes you up a rung. It gets you to a, a new level. But what I've noticed too is, um, I saw it, probably not first with Sam Simmons, but there's now some really bizarre stuff coming along. And, and now there are duos and trios coming back. Because when I began, it was all um, uh, ensemble work. I was with a group of seven people. And then Pinder worked out it was cheaper to pay two stand-up comics to do two hours than it was to pay 14 people <laughs> to do the same amount of time. So that's when stand-up comedy uh, really took off. And because it's so personal, I mean, I, you know, I, I watched Judith and uh, Denise's show last year. I didn't get to see Hannah Gadsby, which is a great shame. But those intensely personal shows are really quite amazing. No, well, Hannah's show, uh, Judith and Denise's show was stunning. Judith's mm. been on this this podcast and Denise is uh, doing it in the next couple of weeks. Mm. So we'll get to chat to her about it as well. It's a stunning show. And mm. to see them at the you know stage of their career, if, yes. you know, to use yep. more an industry term than yep. my term, because yep. you know to us within the industry, they are as strong and interesting as they have mm. ever been. But to see the great success they had not only with finding an audience for that show, but then 
how amazing that show was. Yes. But then to talk about Hannah, which I think is a great example, I saw that show uh, a week into the or a week into the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, yeah, this was a show that people who were in the know were like saying to me, you know what, you should make an effort and go mm. and see Hannah's show. You know, where it's in the lower town hall. It's not the most comfortable room in the oh, world. It's room, yes. You know, um, yeah. and, you know, the night I went, the crowd weren't necessarily, you know, the greatest. You know, they mm. didn't quite know what they were going to see. Mm. You know, if you were going to see an hour of, you know, had, well, there's certainly some laugh out loud funny moments in the show. But uh, without giving anything away, there's it, people may be aware that there's a sort of twist to the show. Mm. Where she talks, you know, it's very much about the nature of comedy, which is this idea that sometimes the punchline can take away the reality of the situation. Mm. You know, that by laughing at something, that it can diffuse the power of what is actually a real thing. So the reason that I bring that up is that when you talk about something like politics or you talk about something like climate change, you know, something important, do you ever worry you know, that by giving people, like by making a joke about thing, by making it a, you know, a lighter thing or a, you know, that, you know, somehow it diminishes the power of the reality of the thing? Um, um, look, I suppose I don't worry about it. I understand that. Um, but I've also, I also understand that comedy is never going to change anything. So I'm comfortable with that. Um, Did you always think that? Or was there a point? No, where you I really, that I really had a, I really, I made a decision a long time ago that, um, as I said earlier, it's a privilege to talk to a group of people, and I just, I'd run out of my life. I mean, you probably started autobiographically with your material, did you? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's always for a novelist or a painter or whatever. You always start to draw on your experiences. Um, But my life ran out (laughs) really very quickly. I have a very dull life and I'm not a very observant person. Um, Also, they don't tell you how to appropriately rationalise it early on. No. You you tend to like jam about three years worth of ideas into 10 minutes. Mm. You're like, I really should have (laughs) lingered a moment on that one and saved that one until next year. So I... um, um, I just decided if I'm going to do it, I'll, I'll use it to talk about things that I think are important. Um, so I made that conscious choice, and as my agent said to me when I went to talk to him about why I wasn't getting any work, he said to me, uh, you made a decision. And I sort of understood it at the time. It's become clearer to me that I actually made a decision to get off the stage and onto a bandwagon, and that was not a wise commercial choice. Um, I burnt a lot of bridges by being public about political issues. Um, but I'd never... Um, sadly, they've just learnt that burning bridges is actually the number one contributor to climate change. That's right. So. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all my fault. <laughs> it's all my fault. So I, I would not do it if I knew... Look, a couple of things that impacted me. One, I never knew, never thought about being famous until I was famous. And you may have found this too. There just comes a point where I don't... I never um, turn my back on somebody who says, hello, Rod, in the street. And my wife has to drag me away because I'm I'm really quite happy to talk to people about me. That's really interesting. Um, But I I never realised what fame meant and and that loss of public privacy is really quite significant. Um, Now, all that's faded and there's not many people who pick me up in the street anymore. Um, But the other thing that I learnt was that um, 
um, you can raise issues with people. And as somebody said to me after a show one night, she said, I love coming to your shows because it means I don't have to read a newspaper for a year. So and what you do too, I mean, we've got the privilege of being able to sit and read and look and cogitate and compare this with that and, and um, you know, forensically go through the world that we live in. And that's an extraordinary privilege and it's uh, probably the most enjoyable part of what I do. Um, it's interesting to me that you say that because I've been ruminating on that point a lot of late, mm. which is, you know, trying to be uh, less, and this has been a thing that's been happening over years, but like distilling that idea of going, don't judge somebody for not being aware of something mm. that you're only aware of because you have the luxury of being able to think about life yeah. for 12 yeah. hours every day. Yeah, well, I now, I now worry that what, what do I know um, that the audience knows? You can't make jokes about things people know nothing about. And I've been in front of audiences where, you know, the only thing we've all had a common experience of seems to be breathing. Um, and so I, what I used to worry about was my shows becoming lectures. So I can't make this joke down here until I tell you that in 1954 the CIA overthrew the democratic um, uh, government of Iran and um, put in a dictator, which was the beginning of all the problems that we have in Iran today. Now I'm going to do the joke. And so finding your way through that's difficult because we do know in the main more than your average punter knows. Um, even the most um, attentive average punter comes up to me and says, I didn't know that. Um, and particularly with climate change, I talk to, in fact, it's most of my living now is going around the country doing sort of fundraisers for local environment groups. And these are people who give every waking minute of their life to... Um, sustainability and trying to build resilience in their local community and they got no idea that it's all fucked and you're, they're really wasting their time and that's a hard thing that's one of the hardest things is to being able to tell people that the energy they're expending is in all in the wrong direction and if they want to do something they've got to head off in this direction with the reality but the the joy of what I've done is I've met the most extraordinary people and you no doubt have done that too through all the things that you've done. But, you know, I just spent a night with Shirley Shackleton, whose husband was one of the journalists killed in East Timor back in uh, 70, when was it, 72, I think, somewhere around there. Um, and she spent her whole life getting justice for her husband and still doing it. And she's the funniest, most dynamic, four-foot-tall woman um, who just will take no, not take no for an answer. So she lives not far from here and she was in the uh, Centrelink office, she's on a pension, um, and she needed the toilet. And so she said to a staff member, well, can I use your toilet? And they said, no, we don't have a public toilet. You've got to go down to Coles. And she said, I'm not doing that. I'll piss on your carpet if you don't let me use your toilet. And she meant it, she would have done it. And so she got to use the toilet. I thought, what a fantastic woman. I mean, she can take on Gough Whitlam and she can take on a, a little apparatchik in Centrelink. So you meet wonderful people who are unsung and unnoticed um, and they're really inspiring and in the end you can't turn your back on them. I mean, one way I'd like to say, I'm just going to leave it, this concept of me being a communist or whatever people think I am behind and just be that comedian who comes up and makes people laugh about 
I don't know, milk bottles and barrows. I've got no idea what you mean. I know, but the problem that. would be that you'd start talking about milk bottles and then you'd start talking about the nature of our plastic use and how it's clogging up and the oceans and you'd the be dairy right industry the and your father's <laughs> problems. Yeah, yeah, I know where to go. Yeah, I, I think I'm a hopeless romantic about all of that. But uh, what's when you're putting together this show uh, that mm-hmm. you're doing at the festival? I mean, uh, do you. Do you start with a blank page and then fill it with ideas? Do you start with an idea and then fill out the words? Do you let the, you know, like how does the structure come together? How much of it on a night-to-night basis is a different experience to what it was the night before? When I was younger, every night was different. Now I get older, they they seem more the same. But now I, I always start with some sort of grand idea, and this grand idea is really trying to explain to people how we got to be where we are. And, you know, that's about history. Um, it's, about, um, it's about physics, about chemistry, it's about personalities, it's about politics, it's about a whole lot of things. Um, and I'd really like to be able to weave a, a historic narrative through the last... Oh, sometimes I think 20,000 years is probably not long enough and other times I think it's too long. But uh, I think one of the great turning points is definitely um, the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. So I might start with Galileo and work forward from there. But I just, uh, you know, you look at the Middle East and people have got absolutely no idea why that happens the way it does and underneath it all is its unfortunate position in the geopolitical landscape but worst of all god gave them all the oil and that was a terrible thing i've always said to my daughters never never have oil don't get an oil well just stay away from oil it only brings you trouble so it you know we artificially divided it up with straight lines on a map at the end of the first world war and we put people who had no affinity with one another in the same country, and the people they did have affinity with were blocked off on another side of a border, and then we just started pecking away at their oil. And so we prop up Saudi Arabia, and when Trump um, decided there were people from certain countries that couldn't come into uh, the US, Saudi Arabia was not one of them, um, and neither was Egypt, because they're their two great allies in the uh, in the Middle East. And... Um, and so we just we blow them up. It's, I mean, it's just the scale of, of the horrors and the consistency of what we've done there over the years is just overwhelming. And then we're going to let some white South African farmers come in ahead of people that we've absolutely torn their world apart, um, and we won't we won't give them anything. So I despair of my country. Um, I now at the end of the show I do encourage people to consider assassination I think there's no point hanging around but I was just thinking about <coughs> I, I try to get people to go and build a guillotine but the problem now is that um, so the French Revolution there was no um, there was no Facebook there was no Instagram there was no CIA there was nothing and it was really easy to tell who the bastards were the bastards were in satin with Buffed wigs and they smelled nice. Everybody else was a muddy, mucky peasant, um, and it's so much difficult, more difficult now. I don't know who the people we should 
put in the guillotine are anymore. They wear suits and they have their private jets and they go to places that I'll never go and I don't know how you find them. So I have a sort of general, if they're wearing a suit, take them out sort of policy. It's rather broad, and a scattergun, I think, is the expression. I've got to be honest with you, it's not a bad starting point, though. No, it At least there's like a, a first whiteboard well, idea before you narrow it down. It's yeah. not a... <laughs> Let's start with the people in suits, and we yeah. can look. We can make a few exceptions yeah. along the way, but yeah. oh yes, we could probably yeah, could get a little token. Don't assassinate. Yeah. Rod said I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd have to prove yes. why you shouldn't be assassinated if you were wearing a suit. Twenty-five words or less. Okay, <laughs> I'm not reading essays. Twenty-five words or less. Write to me now. PO Box three one one Clifton Hill. How did we? I mean, look, I don't expect, you know, you to have a definitive answer. I'm just asking for your opinion. But I do feel we are, you know, meaner and more divided than we've ever been. It feels like, you know, part of this comes from obviously the way the media has pitted us against each other, of course. Um, it feels like the right and the left, you know, as arbitrary as those labels are, but let's use them on anything. Two sides mm. of every argument seem to be at this incredible extreme when you can you can't see a way that those two sides will ever agree with each other how did we get here what do we do well the getting here is i mean it's, it's really complicated really is complicated but what's going on in america is a, is the failed ideology of thomas paine and the idea of the rights of man and the freedom of the individual to uh, live his life free of um, unlimited um, intrusion from the state and that grew into the all government is bad government um, and now we've got to the position here and around the world where um, the right for whatever better word is um, demands that be the state be minimal in its uh, intrusion into the economy into the social life because governments don't work and then they elect somebody like Trump to prove that governments don't work, so it becomes... He's done a, a pretty good job of proving that governments yes, don't work. absolutely. <laughs> and um, so, and that, look, that just suits a lot of people, you know. I, I really think that there are people who um, um, are psychopathic. There's, there's so many people in this world who are very well-to-do are basically psychopaths. They have no empathy uh, or, or sensitivity to the needs or sufferings of others. I, I don't know how you could sit, um, what is it, 80 people have got 50% of all the world's wealth. I don't know how you could be one of those 80 people and sleep at night. But then they couldn't possibly work out how I can sleep at night and not be one of the richest 80 people in the world. We just don't understand each other. And we... What I well, how long's the podcast? I'm the I'm the child of people who lived through the First World War, the Depression, and the Second World War. So as children, my parents would have seen legless men and uh, blind men and people with shell shock, and they would have heard their neighbours having nightmares every night, as I heard. My neighbour was on the Changi Railway um, and I had a bedroom opposite his over a road in Coburg and I heard him scream every night. He just relived the, the railway every night and in the end very sadly suicided. But he used to take me to the cricket every day of the cricket. He'd take me to the cricket and make me score on one of those huge score pads. I'd have to sit right up the very back and score the cricket for him. Um, 
so my my mother lost her husband, first husband in the war. You know, my uncle lost his leg. Everybody knew somebody had either been completely and utterly lost, or only bits and pieces of them ever come back. And that generation looked back on the Holocaust and the death camps and the atomic bombs and just said, "We've just." so buggered this up we're going to make it better so that we had the start of the welfare state and we had some, you know um, the support of those uh, less capable of um, making their way through the world um, and all that's just slowly been eaten away and eaten away and the thing that frightened the right so much was the 60s the environmental movement that started in the 60s and that very tiny percentage of the world that listened to Jimi Hendrix and Cream and, and Iron Butterfly. Do you remember Iron Butterfly? I do. Nobody do- oh, you do? I do. I bought their album and my family won't let me play it. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, but there was a real, there was a real groundswell. It was um, in part fueled by um, the Vietnam War. I was called up for Vietnam, so I... I had a few interesting years till Whitlam got in. Um, but that really put the wind up the right, and the right actually went away and got intellectuals, got people who could spin a, a sentence together to promote their ideology to match the Marxes of this world or whatever. Um, so it's been a very concerted campaign to take away any voice but their own. I mean, the attacks on the ABC, which you would be extremely familiar with, are entirely designed to take away that voice, that counterbalancing voice. And as, as I say in the show, the ABC couldn't, uh, couldn't match the power of Murdoch and Channel 9 and Kerry Stokes if it was run by Marx and Lenin. I mean, that, that voice is so powerful. And, um, and it, it now, like the complaints, having worked at the ABC mm. myself for 20 years mm. now... I've seen how much it's changed to a place that has leaned way too far to the idea of, you know, equivalency rather than, you know, fact-based. Mm. You know, the ABC used to be, you could hear what everybody else was doing as their spin, but the ABC's sort of remit was that they would bring you the facts or the yep. truth. And the facts and the truth have been characterised by the enemies of the facts and the truth mm. as being the ideology of the left or yes, the that's right. whatever. That's right. but- and so then the ABC... <laughs> Like, I always used to, I've, as you can imagine, Rod, I've had this argument many times mm. behind the scenes about the idea that uh, if you try to appeal to the editorial writers of the Australians, then you still won't make them happy because mm. they, don't, they don't want the ABC to be what they're telling you they want the ABC mm. to be. They want the ABC to not exist. Yes, yes. And so they'll just move the go- If you, you know, lean over <laughs> yeah. to that bit, yep. they'll just move the goalpost further away. Mm. Uh, Tom Ballard, who I know you know and is uh, speaking of precocious in hopefully the nicest of all yes. possible ways, that one of the smartest, funniest, uh, you know, kind of socially interesting, you know, performers that yes, you know, this country has yeah. ever produced, uh, has, has been in the middle of one of these, you know, pantomime furors at the moment, which is about them using the C word on his show mm-hmm. that is on a side channel on the ABC that is watched by 50,000 people you know, mm. maximum per evening. And I was contacted by a journalist from The Guardian, Amanda Mead, and uh, normally, to be honest, my preference is to not comment on things that are not of my own making. I mm. have enough of messes of my own making. <laughs> yes. But this felt like one of those ones where you, fit, you know, I should, I'm going to fly the flag a little here because, you know... Um, 
And the truth of what I said to her was, this, is, this has nothing to do with whether they're obsessed with, you know, the, Tom Ballard's show saying the C word. They're, they don't like the idea of the A, B and C in a row. They mm. don't care about the UNT after the C. No. They, they don't want the ABC. And they're just using this particular example to prosecute their case against the ABC. Mm. And a couple of months from now, they'll use a complete other example to prosecute their, their case against the yeah. ABC. Yeah. Oh, yes, it's, no, you're absolutely right. Um, you saw it with the, um, uh, not in relation to the ABC, but with this, uh, the business of local councils um, uh, changing the date of Australia Day. And that just became the loony left, the loony left. And then I think I saw out in one of the suburbs now um, the uh, rubbish men who come around for your wheelie bin are now checking what's in your wheelie bin. Mm-hmm. And they'll put a note on your wheelie bin saying, blah, 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 you shouldn't have this here and this here and this here. So that became Big Brother and the Herald Sun and a huge stink um, about privacy and, you know, who's looking in our wheelie bins. It's got nothing to do with us being tracked every minute of the day with our iPhones and all our information going into these extraordinary data banks. It's that little rubbish man who now knows what you put in your bin. But the Chinese aren't taking our rubbish anymore because it's not clean enough for them. So now the councils are having to spend millions and millions and millions of extra dollars to try and sort out uh, the best way to send clean waste to China. Best way is just not to have waste, but that's what's going to happen. Um, so yes, every little every little crack. There are people there, funded by Minnow Murdoch and the mining company. They're just people there who listen to the ABC radio and watch the ABC television, and then they just dart off and away they go. And then the Heartland Institute in America feeds in all the crap that they need, and it all ends up coming out of Andrew Bolt's mouth. And um, yeah, it's it's just. It's it's a tsunami of, of um, propaganda, and it's really hard to get through, particularly if you care about MasterChef and um, Married at First Sight. You know, if you, if those things are concerns for you, there's not a lot of room left up in the little cranny um, to uh, filter out all this nonsense that's coming our way. How do you find good information? So, say, yeah, let's say, you know, that I, because you know, again, like-minded people on the podcast, but. Mm. Uh, you know, this very thing could, you know, have the, the accusation of being, you know, a place that people go to, to at least in some part have their, you know, own preconceptions mm. reinforced. So how do you as a person uh, get a broad world view? But uh, like, I mean, do you have to, like, are you the sort of person who will read what Andrew Bolt has to say so that you know what Andrew Bolt is saying? I, I used to do that and I got an ulcer. So I get my, <laughs> I get my daughter to read him. Now, this is a good one, Dad. Um, now, I do read those things. Um, and politics, um, politics, you try and, you know, for every little tidbit of a political story, try and find three or four sources uh, understanding it's a bit like film reviews you know you ultimately you find the film reviewer whose taste matches yours taste and you don't deviate too much and so you know I have people uh, well publications particularly that I read so the Guardian I think is absolutely vital um, I find that uh, a really good place to begin but with climate change I went to the CSIRO I went to the Tyndall Institute in um, England. The, the uh, um, I read. Um, I can't read deeply scientific papers, but I can read summaries and, and uh, uh, broad discussions of science. So I look at those. But for American politics, the best place I've found so far is Counterpunch. 
Counterpunch is a really fabulous uh, website that posts 10 or 15, 20 articles a day about um, everything going on in America. And that one's very handy, but I never take any fact as a fact until I make sure I've got a couple of versions of it. Because again, I mean, it's a, I'm on stage, but I'm very conscious that if I say something that isn't right, that that pulls the the blocks out entirely from everything you've said. Just when Trump gets away with it, but, uh, I can't, and neither can you. If you um, if you go on the ABC and patently get something wrong. Uh, you're always reminded of it. Tim Flannery uh, lives with Andrew Bolt saying, but you said in 1996 there'd be no more rain. And look, it's raining. Um, you just, you just got to be so careful. There is, how do you alert people to an impending danger? Because, I, you know, there probably is an element somewhere in that balance of it being an imprecise science, mm. you know, you're talking about something very big. You know, people know, A, this is happening and here are what some of the projected effects are. But, you know, the world is a big and complicated place. So some of those things aren't going to arrive on time, mm. you know, to a train schedule of like, you know, in three years it's going to be this and in no, five years no. it's going to be this. You know, sometimes it's going to be about general trends and sometimes, you know, the idea that there's going to be more extreme weather. I mean, you hear the argument all the time. It's pretty hot today. What mm. about your global warming? Oh, yep. It's cold, you know, yep. cold here. That's what about your global yeah. warming or whatever? So uh, how do you alert people to an impending doom without putting something out there that, you know, it, that then becomes overly alarmist when the oceans haven't risen a metre and a half oh, in yes, 10 I years see. or okay. whatever? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm careful about that, but I... Um, and it, it is changing. I, I remember the first show I did about climate change was a bit over 10 years ago, and the IPCC report said that the Arctic would be ice-free by uh, 2090. Now, the Arctic is very close to being ice-free. Probably in the next 10 or 15 years it'll be ice-free. So that all those predictions about how worse things are going to be are actually getting closer they're not getting farther away so I, uh, the project i'm doing was uh, at the university called the last tim tam and it's about how tim tams will become extinct so i've done all the research about where chocolate comes from and what climate change has done to the chocolate producing areas and what ebola has done to places you can and can't get into now if you want to grow cocoa and how um, the big cocoa companies are now taking it to other third world countries to try and grow it there but the conditions aren't so good so the chocolate's not so good and sooner or later the people of the guinea coast in africa who grow 70 percent of it are going to go well look you can't eat money uh, we're going to pull these cocoa trees out and we're going to start growing food for ourselves so we're going to find um, i put 2030 on it um, as a time that tim tams would be extinct or currency um, and there are days when i think oh you should be made at 2035 but then there are other days I think, well, no, I'll stick with 2030. So um, it, it is difficult, and lots of quotes in the world say only a fool makes predictions. So I've always considered myself a fool. That's our <laughs> primary a credential. Fool. Yeah, yeah, exactly, job description. So um, I'm interested But in I'm the... careful. I mean, I really, I really do check and double-check. And, and, but equally, I notice that, and I think it's just human, you are pulled to that view that you you know that everything's been directing you towards and then I, i'll get an article that says no it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be and i'll so i'll follow that down as far as i can be bothered 
uh, if it really gets in the way of what I think, I'll have to tear it up and <laughs> destroy all reference to it. No, I, I, I'm, I've always just been very conscious of trying to be as right as I can be because uh, part of doing political comedy is you're making fun of real people and um, I don't want to do that unless I've got a very good reason to do that. Yeah, I, 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 I must admit that people are often... And I, I think even people who, you know, uh, well, people I think would be surprised at how much right-wing media, to mm. use the air quotes that no one can say on the podcast, but that I consume because mm. I want to hear what is being said about the topics that I want to say, yeah. but I also want to test my ideas. And I often find that in a creative sense, you get better, like that little bit of spark of anger or when somebody says something ridiculous that your brain immediately reacts to, you yeah. know, well, that's not true because this isn't that, is a much more creative space than perhaps reading something or consuming something that reinforces an idea that you already have. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, and I, I, certainly when I was obsessed with politics, that's exactly what I did. I, just, I, f I find reading The Australian very difficult still, mm. But I can flip through uh, the Herald Sun and I'll... Now there's paywalls over everything that Murdoch's got. I don't have much access. But there's a good thing called uh, the Kids Herald Sun and I'm sure there's a Kids uh, Courier Mail. They cover climate change really well in the right. kids' pages. Well, because the kids care, because it's yeah, their world that's been fucked absolutely. up. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so um, is there... Do you think... That's interesting to me, though, that even, like... Yeah, because they're just running a commercial business, right? Mm. They've decided that, you know, that young people are interested in climate change yeah. because it's obviously their world and their planet that's going to be destroyed and their way of life. Um, is there hope that... Is it too late? Like, as in, like, if we, if the next generation, these young people growing up, you know, with the impending doom, is it going to be too late for them by the time? Or do you have some hope and belief in human <coughs> ingenuity that we will find a way to Well, this fix is the this? sad thing. It's yin and yang. Um, uh, it's human ingenuity that got us where we are. It's our capacity to uh, use fossil fuels as a substitute for en human energy and animal energy that's given us the, the scale, the capacity and the scale that we have to rip the earth apart is extraordinary. You know, you look at uh, those tar sands um, uh, areas in Canada, you look at those from space and it's just hundreds and hundreds of square kilometres of devastation. It's just huge. Um, so, no, I don't have any hope. The last IPC, or the, the Paris Climate Accord, where everybody went array, everybody but the US and Syria has signed this, and incidentally, the Syria has signed it now, yep. and the US stands alone as having not signed it. But everybody went array, and we're going to keep it to 1.5 degrees. Well, that, that horse left the stable or whatever, something bolted from some, some animal left of something because we can't do that. It's too late. There's a... There's a lag in um, um, carbon expressing itself as temperature in the atmosphere, and it's 10 to 20 years before it fully becomes the, the horror that it can be. So I spoke to a guy who was head of the major research centre in England, um, and I talked to him about two degrees, and he said, well, the molecule of CO2, a molecule of CO2 that went into the atmosphere in 1980 is the molecule that will tip us over two degrees. So we're well on our way to two degrees. Um, everybody says that's the limit, um, but it's happening quicker and quicker. Um, 
and uh, and particularly in the northern hemisphere because um, that's where the bulk of the land surface is and land surface heats up much quicker than the oceans do so um, they're getting they're getting the worst of everything um, you know Portugal on fire Greece on fire um, uh, southern France on fire and the top of Europe there's floods and now there's all these sorts of things uh, and they're just going to get worse and worse and I, no, I, I see nothing for the future and I can't see that an electric car is going to make a jot of difference Elon Musk is just another um, who's the guy in the balloons from England I always forget his uh, name can we just have a pause just yeah. for a second I bumped into the camera. It's my first time on national television and I, I bumped into the camera. I mean, you've got to live and learn, really, don't you, in this national television world. I, I, um, well, look, because it's my first time, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd like to clear up, you see. I'm not doing this show for the fun of it. I'm not doing it for the money or the fame or the glory or any of those things you read about in TV Week. I am doing this show for you. Did, did that sound sincere? Did it sound like a metal? Fine, OK, fine. Now, who are you? There's no need to answer because I can't hear you anyway. We know who you are. You're ABC viewers. You're not interested in the mindless commercial television and its escapism and frivolity. You want thought-provoking, stimulating programs like the ABC provides. Programs like Four Corners, Nationwide, Mr Squiggle. Now, because... <laughs> Because you watch the ABC, you know about life. You know about pain and suffering. And so do I, because I live in Melbourne. <laughs> I've, in fact, lived in Melbourne all my life. Occasionally it feels longer. And I'm actually, I'm actually from a very poor family. Our family was so poor. Are you ready for this? Because this is the joke, you see. They said, if you're going on national television, you've got to tell a joke. So I thought, all comedians tell poor jokes. And I thought I'd tell... Not, not that I'm from a poor family. Our family was very well off, really. It's just there's nothing funny about being rich. You see, now, our family... you love it. Our family... Our family was so poor, we were the only family in Australia to be supported by a Vietnamese orphan. That's not bad! That's my first joke on national television. Yeah, no, that's all right. I'm putty in your hands. Um, I'm conscious that it hasn't been the most amusing conversation. No, 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 <laughs> conversation. Mate, this is exactly what I... Uh, I mean, I, I, look, it's a place for people to talk about what they think is interesting or important. And I categorise the future of humanity as falling into the vague Venn diagram of something that's useful and important. Mm. <laughs> Good. Okay. Not, not, not everybody does it. No, no. But to talk to me about uh, capitalism. So capitalism is uh, something that comes up a lot yes. on this show. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a person who has been both of it, um, you know, like I am in the system and have benefited, you know, greatly from the mm. system at different times. Um, I do a television show that. Uh, is both about advertising, but I hope uh, also critical of the idea of advertising. Sometimes it's more one way or the other. and It's very revealing, that show. I hope. Yeah. No, I hope that at its heart it is. The mm. idea is to lure the experts in with a little honey to reveal some of the secrets mm. of how more broadly we're being manipulated. And sometimes, you know, you can't please everybody about which side of the that you know, ledger that you're on. But I have a theory that, 
many of the issues that we're having in our society. Um, I look at this next generation, you know, the mm. so-called millennials, you know, that mm. are demonized every day in the press by, you know, yeah, they can't afford a house because they eat too many avocados. <laughs> right. You know, um, the coffee, the coffee they drink, $3.50. You could buy a house for $3.50 when I was two years old in 1948. Yeah, yeah, they do cop it tough. Right, yeah. like, uh, and they're, they're a generation that has been raised on advertising, mm-hmm. raised on and by advertising. Yes. They have been raised in a world from as long as they have been alive, they have been hooked into... That, I mean, uh, advertising has been described as the poetry of capitalism, mm-hmm. right? You know, it is. it exists to make sure that you are not happy with what you have because yeah. at the very nature, even advertising for our shows, let's mm. be honest, I like say to people, if you think that you're not quite happy enough or not quite interested <laughs> enough or don't quite know about, you know, yeah. like you're constantly saying that. That's the inherent thing at trying to sell someone something is mm. creating the fact that they need that thing in yes, the first place, that's right? right? So you have a generation that has been raised with this dream that you can be anything and you can have anything, but we are at, it seems, the nadir of that dream being exposed as the lie that it really is, which is it has become that, you know, 80 people in the world can have everything they possibly Mm. want and then everybody else is going to have a diminished return on what it is because 80 people in the world have most of the stuff. Yes, yeah. And might I say you're the first comedian ever to use the word nadir. So congratulations, I'm really touched. I feel special. Um, now it's look, it it served its purposes. I mean, it, it's capital that built the railways. It's capital that you know built our cities. It's capital that built factories and so on. Um, where it fails is that um, it has to be tied into politics. And, you know, I sort of grew up, I suppose, in the 60s and 70s with some vague idea of democratic capitalism, where the people controlled the way markets worked. Um, In the states where it's most prevalent and where their history is of oligarchs and uh, individual wealth and that dream that any boy can be rich if he wants to be, and I'm rich because if I'm not going to be rich, somebody else will be rich, so I may as well be rich. And so th- they tell them their, th- themselves that story, and every society tells its own little myths and stories. Um, but what, it's it's managed to throw off the shackles that my parents' generation tried to put on it. You know, it's thrown off its burden of tax and you know, yeah, we're going to have a tax cut for corporations and you look in the newspapers, they don't pay tax. What are we going to cut? I mean, you know, some of these companies are paying zero tax. No, I mean, the the idea of companies having to pay 25% tax would be a good thing for some of them. Mm. We'd be happy if a Google or an Amazon or a BHP came in and started paying 25% tax. I'd be in, oh, yes, I'd absolutely (laughs) be for it. So we've, we've just let it run unfettered. And, you know, when the financial crisis happened in America and everybody turned to Wall Street and said, you cocaine-addled fools who are using algorithms that can respond to a market in a millionth, millionth of a second, and that gives us an advantage over the people next door who've only got a millionth of a second, um, it became this machine for making money and anticipating. And um, when it all fell apart, the bankers went to the government, and it was Obama by then, and they said, was it, no, it wasn't Obama, was it Obama? Yes, it was Obama. And said, um, the reason this happened is there's too much regulation. 
And they said, yes, there is too much regulation. We'll, we'll just get out of your way entirely and you go off and do what you want to do. And what they'll do is forget the lessons of the past and we'll have it happen all again. So it's not just climate change. It's, it's, uh, it is capitalism. Capitalism has powered the capacity to uh, completely change the planet. It's powered the way and the speed with which we can consume things. Um, and as you said about advertising, um, it... It works on manufacturing wants instead of satisfying needs. Um, I, I mean, one of the things I'm taking on stage with me uh, this time round is a big W catalogue, and I just want to go through 60 pages of plastic and talk about do we really need these things, you know? Um, my, I remember my neighbours who had no children... Um, and I, you never think about it at the time, but obviously it was a, um, some situation that made their lives a bit of a tragedy. But I remember they got a musical toilet roll holder, so when you pulled on the paper, the toilet roll played music for you. And uh, that, I don't know, I was 15 or 16 when I found out about that, and I just uh, that was an epiphany for me, to think that with all that's going on in the world, a musical toilet roll holder takes pride of pace. I just... So I find it very difficult. Um, I find it difficult now that people buy European chef-sized stoves for their kitchen um, and they have a similar one in the backyard for their barbecue um, and that life revolves around um, cooking programs. I, I still haven't worked out what the... I mean, I sort of understand something of the appeal of it, but our, our life is just filled with these trivial things. And, uh, you know, in, at one instance you've seen children in Myanmar with nothing and then you can go back and you can watch this lavish consumption around a, a competition where this woman's got Botox and this woman's got Botox and we hate them but the other couple are really nice even though he can't cook and oh, blah, 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 and it makes the headlines of the newspapers. And So capitalism's been really wonderful and if people want, uh, I suppose, a, a visual metaphor for it, it's the image of Che Guevara when uh, in the 60s when he was killed, that image said revolution. Now it says vodka and now it says all sorts of other things and they, they actually... Um, absorb uh, everything that can be commercialised. So all the all the uh, fashion uh, that kids wear, they've got people on the streets in New York looking at street gangs who are shooting one another because there's no money, no hope, no support, lousy schools, there's just nothing for them. So they shoot one another and they create a wardrobe out of whatever's around and all of a sudden somebody spots it, goes back to, I don't know who makes clothes, goes back to them and says, here's the new fashion. That goes all the way around the world. And it, it, just, it has this extraordinary capacity to monetize everything and the old expression of the uh, uh, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And you get back to the barrier reef, you know, really what is a barrier reef worth? How can you... I was on stage with Josh Frydenberg at a thing called uh, Coral and Coal and it was a, a pre-election event last year. Um, and to his credit he came along, it, clearly it was his electorate, to talk um, in front of scientists who were saying the reef is dying, the reef is dying, the reef is dying, the reef is dying. And at the end of it all, I said to him, look, Josh, um, I don't really know you, and, and this is not a question to you, the minister, it's just a question to you, Josh. How do you feel when all these people have told you the Great Barrier Reef's dying? Well, my government's got a policy, and off you go. You can't. And my favourite story is... Um, 
I was talking to Bob Brown and he said uh, he, he always worried about the forest and he said he invited Graham Richardson down to see the Tasmanian forest when um, Keating was in. And Richardson said yes, so Bob Brown took him down into the Tarkine and I've been in the Tarkine with Bob and when you see um, uh, through other people's eyes really what's there, it's extraordinary. And uh, Richardson went back to Canberra and said, we've got to stop the logging, we've got to stop the logging, I've seen it, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, we can't let them, it's just incredible, we've got to stop the logging. So Bob was really pleased and he went to Keating and he said, uh, look, Richo came down, uh, would you come down and see the forest? And Keating said, no, I've seen what it did to Richo. And that's where it sits, I don't know about it. You know, you tell me the reef's dying, the bit they took me to see looks really good. I didn't see the 90% that's bleached, I just saw the good bit. So it's, I don't know, it's a system that will fail. Um, it would be better if it failed slowly and we could all accommodate the shift in speed, but it's just going to hit a brick wall because the interests that control it are self-interest. And there's a famous quote, uh, uh, it's impossible to change a man's mind if he's mind if his, his income depends on his opinions. And, you know, I find that too. I mean, there are parts of me that says I'm going to give all this up and go and become a feral, um, but I won't get the pension then, so what am I going to eat? So, we're, we're in it, you know, and we can't change it from within, and I'm very, you know, um, rather it, sad and maudlin to say... Is there... I mean, I, I, it, it's it's such a devastating conversation really to have because the more you talk about it the more the gravity of the enormity of what we have you know wasted mm. what we have you know there's like you know to go back to those david attenborough you know words to the very place that gives us life you mm. know we may be the the great miracle of the universe you know oh, this we, little accident we definitely you are. know that yeah. little accident in the corner of the fucking universe mm. that for whatever reason turned into human beings and you know the progression we've made from the you know the caves to where we are you know in the wonderful and destructive and all of those things that we have done but whatever the story of you know the history of human life is mm. that it might conceivably within our lifetimes be looking at becoming the the end of that story is a terrifying and devastating yeah. thing and it feels like i mean i'm sure a musical toilet hold roll holder <laughs> is actually an absolute delight when you're at the bathroom but it feels like we've given away more than oh, that no no that's right it's really it's and look i i <laughs> I've always been interested in history. I've always read more factual books and um, fiction books. But even as a child, I think I had some understanding of um, nature because it was closer to me uh, as it was to every Melbourneian um, 60 years ago. Um, now, if you want to go and see real nature, you've got a hell of a long drive out through the, the spreading suburbs to find it. Um, but I've just found the complexity of nature, the, the interdependentness, of, and that's the really important thing, that there's nothing that isn't here because of something else. You know, if, uh, you know whether it's the antelope the lion eats or whether it's the fungus under an orchid. You know, without the fungus, the orchid doesn't grow, and without the orchid, the fungus doesn't grow. I mean, it's just it's incredible the way that it all fits together. Um, 
and it's incredible what human beings are capable of, you know, the music and the sculpture and the painting and the literature and the comedy, you know. Um, comedy doesn't get its just desserts, but they're uh, true geniuses in comedy, and they always have been, and they have important things to say, and they say them in a way that um, is unique. And I think comedy has a power to embed itself. If you get the right joke about the right thing, you can stay with people. Uh, a lot longer than a, a line from Shakespeare. Um, it just has a way of alerting people. And the, I've given up trying to analyse what a joke is, but there is a contradiction in a joke. There's a disconnect somewhere along the line where you join two things that nobody was expecting you could join. And when you join those two things and it means something, um, it's really it's a wonderful thing. It's really satisfying to do that. And I remember being uh, reading a review in the Green Guide, perhaps back in the 60s, that basically said, I, the reviewer said, I remember the comedy shows I was watching 20 years ago, um, but I don't remember the crime shows, because all crime shows are the same. Somebody dies, everybody runs around, and we get the murderer, and it's all over. And whether it's Rosemary or Time or NCSI or whatever they are, they're all the same. The comedies are always unique and you can't do the same joke twice really so um oh sorry that's all right i thought that was turned off on where do we go Let's turn off. uh the anyway. idea of the joke <laughs> i'm good at phones yeah, it's okay it's yeah. the, the idea of the joke um the connection of an idea to a joke it struck me uh i assume that this is the connection uh, obviously correct me if i'm wrong but uh, you talk about the last Tim Tam, mm. you know, connecting the idea to something that people, you know, can see. You know, like you know, I know I know Tim Tams. I like Tim Tams. Mm. I eat Tim Tams. Uh, there is a process into now thinking about what this Tim Tam is made of. You know, what where it comes from, yes. uh, and then charting that back, and then the idea that yeah, we lost another species of rhino in just oh, this no. last week. Yeah. Yes. I don't see rhinos every day. No. So, to be honest, in the grand scheme of my life, it's, I mean, I was heartbroken, but mm. it doesn't change my walk to work or anything. You know, no. it's not like I, oh, that, you know, that I, but the Tim Tam, you're connecting a much bigger idea to something that, you know, people have an understanding of. Oh, you need it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Good. Good. Makes, it makes me okay. feel good about yeah. that, to be honest. Okay. Thanks for wearing a hat. Uh, I don't feel so lonely. My hat is my disguise. You know when you're talking about that idea of loss of identity. Uh, I'd say loss of public privacy, mm. I guess, you know, might have been how you explained it. Um, I, when I was young, imagined... There was definitely a part of me, I hate reframing my life through who I am now mm -hmm. to d explain who I was then. Um, I, fame and the idea that people knowing who I was I'm not going to discount that being a major part of what compelled me to do this in the first place mm -hmm. but what I realised very early on was it was not a major part of what compelled me to keep doing it mm -hmm. you know like sometimes yep. the reason you start doing something is not the reason you continue to do mm. something and you find great satisfaction in other parts of the job that you never imagined would be so satisfying and you start to you know 
feel a loss about those mm. the things that you thought might be good someone knowing who you are become the oh, almost I think, the yeah. downside to your job the, the the cost of doing business of doing the thing that you mm. like to do oh well, i think if you do it for the fame um i think that's a very short career and a very sad one um, you look at <laughs> i remember going to the logies and uh our show was nominated for a logie and just we were about four rows back from the stage, I think, because we were nominated. But right up the back of this ballroom were all these people that you go, weren't you on television? And you know next year they'll be on the other side of the wall and their lives will be over. And, I, yeah, I wonder what happens to those people because it's... Uh, I think I could sort of go and be an Uber driver or something and it wouldn't worry me that nobody knew who I was and if I gave up what I did... Um, but I do it because, as I said to you, from the moment I walked on stage, I thought, this is home. And as I've gone on, I've managed to find ways of keeping it, at least for me, fresh. And, um, again, from my point of view, important. And that's what keeps me going, apart from the fact that um, uh, I haven't died and I've got no superannuation, um, but I still keep going. There's a Barry Humphreys quote of, uh, uh, talking about uh, going on stage and, you know, the feeling that he had was, ah, alone at last, <laughs> uh, which I always liked as a line. Yeah, yes. Barry's good with a line, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's not how I feel on stage. No. I don't actually feel alone at all. I feel like I'm dancing, you know, mm. with a partner and yeah. the audience is the partner and it's the days when I forget to follow their moves or help lead them in the direction to you know make the dance work that are the you know the nights where i walk away and say tonight was great yeah. have less to do with the difference between my performance the night before and the day before and how in tune i was with the audience yeah that night. no that's right it's a dance well a dance is a really good expression but it's a sensation when it goes well um that i um uh wish other people could have and there can't be many things in the world as good as doing a good comedy show and uh, uh, leaving them laughing so you know there are nights when your hour seems like five minutes and uh, I always meet the audience at the door I'm always in the foyer I know exactly who comes into the theatre I'm in and because I've been around so long I've got people who will come to my show who saw the very first show I did 50 years ago um, and in between, particularly through the Kennett years, um, I got a lot of uh, a lot of people in their forties and fifties who now come to my show, so that I get lots of invitations to funerals now. Oh, she loved you. She saw everything you ever did. Oh, she'd love it if you were at the funeral. So I get invitations to funerals. But um, uh, no, it is a it's a rare rare uh, treat to be able to do it. And to still be able to do it after 50 years, I, I, mean, I never really think about it in those terms, but now I am thinking about it in those terms, is fantastic. Um, I can't... Um, I could never do anything else anyway. Nobody would ever employ me to do anything else in the whole wide world. Um, but, yes, it, it is... You know, George Burns was uh, my hero in terms of longevity. He got to 99 and something and was still doing it. Um, and with a cigar too, which was quite amazing. Um, 
Yeah, so I, it is a treat. Uh, it's an absolute treat to be able to do it. So yeah. I always ask this at the end, so I don't uh, feel that it was... Uh, but I, we are, I, the one thing I was going to mention about the Tim Tam thing, sorry, was yes. that... Is that also connected to that joke you used to have about Tim Tams having the wrong amount of... Uh, oh, the uh, 11 in a yeah, pack. Yeah, 11 in a pack. Yeah, yeah, the, the odd number. The, the, yeah. No, I was giving a talk on climate change at a high school, Melbourne High School, and, you know, it was polar bears and whales and worms and all sorts of things, and 800 kids are, um, you know, neither here nor there. And it just popped into my head that Tim Tams will be, become extinct too. And I said that to them, Tim Tams will be extinct. And every little ear pricked up and every eye sparkled. And I just thought, well, that's where the secret lies. It, I mean, you've got to go a fair way down the track to convince them that it's even a possibility. But it's worth going down there to tell them about Tim Tams rather than polar bears. Because as you say, that last rhino um, is, uh, you know... The, uh, the, yeah, they, they hit you really hard when you suddenly realise that something that's been there for hundreds of thousands of years has in a generation of humans been completely and utterly eliminated from the pattern of nature. So um, those things are very grim. Um, but as I say to people, look, even though you're not seeing a polar bear, you've got David Attenborough's Life on Earth with a high-definition polar bear in it, and you can put it on your 56-inch TV anytime you like and see a polar bear so you don't need them in the wild but Tim Tams people do need so this is a thing about you know it's about clothes pegs and it's it's about public transport it's about um, one of the scenarios I've got it is you know there's a uh, two or three days over 50 degrees in Melbourne which will happen within the next 15 years I'd think and what that means to the whole system, how the rail lines buckle and how the asphalt melts, uh, how people can't get in to give blood because you just can't leave the house. And uh, if there's a blackout, there's no air conditioning. So you've got old people and young people just basically lying on the floor at home uh, with an incapacity of the system to, to deal with it. And you throw in a bushfire or two around the city and you've got a you've got a disaster beyond imagining and there's not a person in the government or anywhere around at the moment who's looking at those scenarios sensibly. I mean, it's inevitable. Even if it's not 2030, it's inevitable. Um, Melbourne's going to be in water deficit by 28. 28. We'll, the demand for water will exceed supply by 2028 and we'll end up like um, Cape Town at some point where the water runs out. And yet we want 8 million people in this city, which is nearly twice as many as we've got now, uh, in the next 30 years. And I don't know where we're going to put them. How many bedrooms have you got? I'm in a couple of spare ones, but well, okay. it's <laughs> still going to be a struggle for me to get everyone in. Yeah, no, that's not your entire I'm, responsibility. I'm going to run so, a hose to the bay, and obviously you know, that's get, where my water supply is going to come from for a <laughs> while. yeah. Uh, very lucky they, to live so close. So this is what I ask at the end, yeah. and look, it's a, it's partly what's loomed over this conversation a little. But the idea of death in general, do you think about it? Is it something that you? I mean, obviously we've talked about it on a broader scale, but mm. like on a personal level, oh, you know, do you think about death? Is it ever? Has it been a thing that's ever loomed large in your mind? No, no. You mentioned uh, I did think about it the other day, but my thoughts about it are. Um, rather perverse the reason i don't want to die is because i want to see what happens right but uh, 
<laughs> by the same token, I don't want to be here either when it does happen. But I'm very, very curious about the future. Uh, I really like to um, <laughs> be able to stand up and say, I told you so, if that's right. what it comes down to. So, no, I don't think about it. It's not something... The worry for me is... I'd really like to be able to stand up in 30 years and say, I'm glad I was wrong. <laughs> no, no, that's <laughs> that's the ideal scenario. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, my only concerns for my family... Who would have known? Andrew yeah. Bott was right the whole yeah, time. Right, yes. The one guy who got Oh, it. and I'll have to ring him and apologise. <laughs> but, no, for me, it's more about the family. I just I have this illness in our family, so I'm sort of needed. It's one of the reasons I've never really had a national... Um, Profile, so I can't travel very much. But that's the only reason I'm, I'm curious about. I have no religious beliefs. I don't really have any spiritual beliefs. You're of the feeling that once you you die, that there is nothing more. Oh, absolutely. But I wouldn't mind on that one being proved wrong. Yeah. You know. <laughs> very happy to say I'm not an ideological warrior on these yeah, things. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I'll I, trust I, the experts. But if it turns out there's something else and it's great, I'm. I'm in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not signing anything to say, you know, (laughs) don't do this. No, so I've never really thought about it. It it honestly doesn't, I can honestly say it doesn't worry me. It doesn't concern me. Um, You know, I know people who became alert to the fact that they were going to die in their teens and it's sort of been a shadow over their, a strange sort of shadow over their lives. Um, But I, I don't know. No, I, I don't really think about it in those terms. It is just that sense I'm going to lose out on something because life will in some form go on without me. I, th- I think if people get to this far through this, that maybe something, and maybe you're not able to provide this, but maybe something that they want at the end of a conversation like this is, what can I do? Like, you know, the, 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 I hope that at least there's a sense in some of the people who've made it this far through. <laughs> yes, I'm, who, I'm who waving think, to you, you know, now. what is it that I can do? Now, obviously, uh, on a purely commercial level, buy a ticket to see a show and go and enjoy oh, that. Oh, that and does have a great night me. out of comedy <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, right. and learn a lot about this. No, yeah. it's, I mean, if you're interested, right? No, oh, yes, you've please got come along. Yeah. brilliant you know, opportunity to come along and be entertained at the same time as finding out some more stuff. But... Mm. On a more broad level than that, as a human being who's angry or scared or, you know, believes what you're saying here today, that the very future of your humanity is on the line on a broader scale, I think that the question that a lot of people might have is, so what can I do? Yes, it's an interesting question, that it's a bit, but we've never had a circumstance like this before. So what you can... Look, what I do say to people is that your future is going to be local, the idea of getting on an aeroplane and going anywhere for a holiday, just you can forget about that. Driving to Queensland, you can forget about that. Having pineapples, you can forget about that. Your future will be what can be sustained within the area that you live. And you need to make connections with people in your local area. Um, you need to get informed about this, obviously. Uh, but you need to talk to people about sharing. You need to talk to people about community. You need to... Uh, understand that um, not everybody can have one of everything. Um, you'd be far better off, in, like in a street that I live in, in, in a suburban Melbourne, um, there are houses with four cars in them and they've got a terrace house. Um, they have to park them one on top of one another at night to fit them in the street. Um, 
you don't need that you know well, I'm, I've got one car between four of us and that does what we need to do I can't say that that's the same for everybody but uh, people have got to downsize I've got to ensure uh, water and food they're the big things so if you can get um, you can't do it at the moment but micro grids will become a, a large part of the future so you living where you are will probably have a network of perhaps two or three hundred houses all supplying uh, communal electricity, um, sharing water tanks and water, turning nature strips and football. See, my answer to it all is when the MCG is a vegetable garden, I know we've solved the problem. So if you can work to that iconic um, space, uh, if we can turn that into a vegetable garden, I think we've all understood where we're going. Well, I've got solar panels and water tanks, right? So yeah. all I really need is some, you know... Neighbours. Some neighbours. <laughs> some neighbours to get on board. Yeah. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming and doing the podcast. Uh, so people can find you uh, at, at the Arts Centre yes, during the uh, Melbourne International yeah. Comedy Festival. What... what uh, how many shows are you doing? I'm just doing uh, six shows, so Saturday and Sundays, at the pensioner-friendly time of six and five on Sundays. Um, so I'm doing every weekend except the second last weekend, uh, and it's in the Fairfax Theatre, which is beautiful. Yeah, absolutely uh, beautiful. I mean, half the price of the ticket is just the atmosphere. So it takes a lot of pressure off me to well, entertain. Well, that's true. You're yeah, like, yeah. I mean, Look at the chairs. Why do you need a show? Look at that chair. If nothing else, you sat comfortably for an hour. Yep, indeed. <laughs> indeed. And <laughs> your you show, God. where are you on? Oh, thank you. Good plug. Yeah. It's okay. I'll do a plug for myself okay, right. as well. But uh, comedy theatre, it, you know, it starts this weekend. Please come and see it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Good. Good.